This is the Beyond Belief Sobriety Podcast, where we examine issues of interest to people who have found or who are seeking a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. Kylie Butler enjoyed a successful career in business where she reached what I think is some of the highest levels of success, uh, seeking a role where her values and career would be more aligned. She eventually was presented with what I believe she described in one of her episodes as a gift wrapped in shit. Maybe is what you, how you worded it. <laughs> it sounded a lot nicer yeah. with your accent. Um, no, 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 that's exactly right. A, a gift in, a gift in shitty wrapping paper. There you go. A shitty wrapping paper. There you go. And that yeah. gift was recovery from addiction to alcohol. And you've been giving back ever since. Uh, you have a wonderful website and a podcast called A Meaningful Life by Design, and you use that to help others design meaningful lives for themselves, both in uh, their career and their recovery. And I thought we could talk about a little bit of that. And in addition to being a great podcaster and writer, you're a recovery coach, a career coach, and much more. So today, you are my guest here on uh, Beyond Belief Sobriety, and it's a real honor to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be here, John. Thank you. So uh, why don't we start, Kylie, with an introduction of you and your background, and we'll just kind of go through the story of how um, uh, A Meaningful Life by Design came to be. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So in terms of A Meaningful Life by Design, it's, you know, I can't really extrapolate the business story out from my personal story. It's, it's, it's all one. And that's one, that's an aspect that I absolutely love about my life too, because in my corporate career, I used to be two different personas. You know, there was party cars and there was corporate cars. And I, you know, I get suited and booted and I've worked in London and all these super corporate environments and there were these different versions of who I am, you know. And now I'm very clear, it's just, this is me and this is how I show up and, and my business and my life and my work and all, it all kind of, it's all it's all one. So A Meaningful Life by Design is, is my current business. It's also a platform and it's a podcast and it is essentially... You know, the way in which I help individuals bring their unique gifts to the world in a meaningful way. So it was initially a, you know, a, an inspiring podcast and a career coaching business. And then when I went through my journey of recovery and got honest about my journey of recovery, I started to move my unique gifts into not just coaching individuals on, I mean, for life and living within their values and how they, you know, find what is their uh, chosen career path, purpose, passions, but also um, how, before we do that, how we recover from addictions. So because really my journey, uh, I mean, is it ever easy? I don't know if anyone's, even anyone would ever say, yeah, my recovery journey is really easy. But I, but I, certainly, I certainly made it difficult for myself um, by uh, refusing to accept my alcoholism. So and I now see that as a huge gift because of all my struggles to get sober, of, of my you know desire to absolutely understand addiction from a neurological perspective, from a spiritual perspective, from you know an academic perspective to understand addiction and both recovery and look at it from every angle and try all these different paths and fail and learn um, has meant that it's given me a vast experience in an understanding of addiction and recovery. And now, um, you know, I was already on the path of, of helping coach individuals find purpose and meaning and, and reason in their life. Uh, and now I do that through the lens of recovery, 
you know, and using all his coaching skills in recovery. I recently took um, a course to become a peer support specialist in Missouri. And um, mm-hmm. I'm, I've never been open at work about my recovery, but I decided in this case to go ahead and do so. So I told my boss that I was going to, I needed some time off because I want to take this class to be a peer support specialist. And that was the first time I ever let her know I had anything to do with recovery. She thought it was great. But what I found really interesting is when I took the class, I'm kind of like you, I couldn't, I, I, I said, wow, this would be really great at work because <laughs> the class was all about helping people discover what their goals were in their own recovery, helping them to identify any obstacles to achieving those goals and then helping them um, break through those obstacles. And I thought, wow, I mean, that's just what anybody would need at work. So I could really see the parallel between, you know, what you learned um, in business, then in recovery and kind of putting the two together. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, like coaching, in terms of what I learned on my initial coaching journey, it was like, why wouldn't we all have a coach? You know, if you want to get better at tennis, you get a tennis coach. You know, we all have these specialists and support people in all aspects of our life. But then when it comes to kind of mainstream life, we think we've got to be able to do that on our own and get it right, you know. And so, I mean, coaching is can be for anyone in any realm where they're looking to optimise or um, you know, move closer to their goals. Coaching is um, can be very profound assistance. But then... In, in then in recovery, as you mentioned, like in recovery, we learn this whole other way of how do we live life without self-medicating. And that is, you know, really developing all these other tools to, to live a better life. And for anyone who does the 12 steps as well, like for anyone who hasn't been in recovery, um, and then, you know, you, when we learn about the 12 steps, we're like, these are just amazing principles for, for living life. Like, what a gift that you have, but you know that your life has to fall over before you right, learn these right. gifts. You know, I've I've spoken to friends about you know the twelve steps, and they're like, "Do you do you have to have a problem with drugs and alcohol to use those?" I'm like, <laughs> you actually don't. You actually don't. Like to to you know to be able to say, "Hey, you know, um, to, to accept the situation that you're in, to realize that you make mistakes, to take accountability and ownership of your mistakes, to to make amends for those, to try and show up every day as a better version of yourself, and try and give back and help others." What a wonderful way to live life. But in recovery, we get the gift of being given those tools. And I suppose what I'm doing now in terms of recovery coaching is combining all of these, all the, the tools that we use to get sober, you know, the tools that anyone would learn on, you know, use, work with a coach to achieve their goals in life and kind of pull all of that together and, and help people on their journey. And it can be used, you know, in terms of working with a recovery coach, it can be um, because you don't like the 12-step path or uh, you don't like traditional rehabs or you don't like traditional psychotherapy or it could be used in conjunction of those. So there are some people who are really like, like, like you know, I don't want to sponsor and I don't want to talk about my childhood. I just need to know how to get back on the path. My life's an absolute shit show right now, so how do we deal with that? Like, okay, let's, you know, how, how do we deal with that? And that's what recovery coaching can be. Yeah, that's what, I, <laughs> that's what I like about what I've been learning as well is that, you know, everybody has to have their own path and everybody has to direct their own way through their recovery. And um, what I guess what you're doing is helping people make their way down the path that they want to go. Um, and, and for some people, it might be 12 steps. For some people, it might not be. Um, I've gotten myself to the point where, um, I'm just happy that anybody finds any way that to the recovery that works for them. Um, and, uh, I've, I've, um, 
unfortunately been around the recovery community for a long time. And there, there can sometimes be uh, people that put themselves in camps. So my camp is the, is, is this, and this is the right way to do it, blah, blah, blah. I think that's beginning to break down now more because of, I think, um, actually, I think COVID had a lot to do with it because people were kind of forced now to um, find each other online and uh, they're meeting people outside of their own local communities and they're getting ideas from people from all over the world and, and finding that there's more than one way to think about things. I think it's going to change a bit of our, our recovery culture so that people are more accepting now of the many different paths that can be taken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which is really, which is really brilliant because it's, it's a challenge. And I thought it certainly was a roadblock to me when I first when I first started considering um, getting into recovery, because I was pretty stubborn that I was going to learn to drink like normal people, you know, I wasn't going to give it up. And, um, you know, I did rehab before I was even ready to get sober, you know, because my life was falling apart, but I still didn't want to get sober. And, and I really resisted, you know, um, now I'm really embracing of all the different ways. So like, just like you said, you know, whatever works for you, awesome you know, um, but when I was first introduced to, um, you know, I'm not sure how open you are in terms of, you know, that talking about the secret societies here, but when I was, when I was first introduced to, you know, the, the 12 step paths, I was like, this is not for me. And then there's a lot of flaws in, in, in traditional rehab as well. There is a lot of, um, a very low success rate of a lot of rehabs. They work on, um, making money through insurance, trying to fix people in 28 days. There's a lot of flaws. I've also come across a lot of, you know, dodgy business and that paying on the vulnerable. It's a a brilliant business model, you know, get people in, you know, 95% of them relapse and bring them back in the door again. So there's a lot of, you know, flaws to, and so then, you know, and when I was very resistant to recovery as well, I was like, well, I'm not going to go down that path and I'm not going to go down that path. Now I'm, you know, now I'm really open to the to the to all of the the different paths. But to your point, you know, we really need to find uh, we need to find our own way. You know, what works for us. And you've you've uh, you know you described this this twelve step process beautifully just just a few minutes ago. Um, and you, I think that you've also realized that the twelve steps they don't encompass everything. That you you really need more of a mm-hmm. holistic approach because you write a lot about you know diet, exercise. Uh, things like that, which and and complex trauma. Yes. And trauma and dealing with trauma, which the steps don't cover. That's exactly right. But funnily enough, Bill Wilson was a traumatized traumatized child who also used, and this is a whole nother conversation, plant medicines. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's not in, you know, there's not in the, the 12 steps. And I think, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, I think there is, there's a lot of beautiful aspects to the 12 steps, like the community and, and all the things that I mentioned in terms of those fundamental principles about just living in acceptance, trusting in the universe, owning your own shit, you know, being accountable, showing up and helping other people. I mean, what beautiful principles. And, and there's some, I've met some absolute rock stars, just gems of human beings in, in the fellowship, but, but the, I suppose my problem with the fellowship, um, if it's used in isolation, is that a lot of people are self-medicating, you know, a deep psychological wound with alcohol or drugs. And when they put down the drugs, that wound's still there. So, you know, good diet, you know, spiritual principles, meditation, you know, yoga, fellowship, meeting people, helping others, these are all absolutely wonderful. But if there's, there's a deep trauma wound, then 
that doesn't go away. And what will tend to happen is somebody picks up something else or they get obsessed with something else. And so it's just that, um, what's they, the, they talk about something, you know, whack the mold, you know, it pops up somewhere else. Or people need to get obsessive around certain things because they haven't dealt with, you know, any thoughts, the ship, you know, that, that hole that they were initially willing, looking to fill with uh, with drugs and I heard a beautiful analogy on a podcast recently so um finally I could credit credit the person but it was, it was gorgeous but the analogy was essentially you know addiction is all around uh, there is a gun and the the um unloaded gun is uh, your genetics and then the bullet in the gun is is trauma and now what we know from recent studies is there is no absolute gene for alcoholism it does come down through the bloodlines, but it comes down because of epigenetics and because of the gene, the gene to be sensitive. And the people who are really sensitive souls are more likely to pick it up and their parents are more likely to pick it up. And if you were in a house where there was dysfunction because of alcohol or addiction, then you're more likely to pick it up. But it's not as simple as an addiction gene. So, But if you have that sensitive gene and you've been in an environment that's been you know, if you grew up in a house where there was active alcoholism or addiction, it's unlikely that your five core emotional needs as a child were met. So there's some fractures in kind of the, the fundamental wiring of your mind from the very early years. That kind of sits there. Now, without, without trauma, doesn't, the gun doesn't go off. You kind of live life and you're, you're okay, you know. But if you have that sensitive soul without their emotional needs being met and they're out in the world and there's some kind of level of trauma, then we have addiction. And when I say trauma, I'm not talking, it doesn't have to be, you know, physical abuse, sexual abuse. It can be, we have what we call as kind of in the trauma world, big T's and little T's. And in the, in the formative years, this is where, where I might, where, where the kind of control panel is being wired in those very formative years when our brains are very plastic, um, when we're learning to understand the world and ourselves in context in the world, you know, how we be vulnerable, invulnerable, you know, how we build self-esteem, give love, receive love, whether we have inherent worth in who we are. When we're learning those those uh, those essence elements of ourselves in our early years, if we're not in a great environment, we, we can kind of struggle for the rest of our lives. And then you throw some kind of being hit, being abandoned, moving around a lot, parents who, you know, who are, alcoholic being lonely being being misunderstood or to our sensitive little souls that's the stuff that that causes a real wound that i mean there's stats around so i'm on a roll here now but with the you know if you have a, you know a certain amount of significant trauma in early childhood something like four thousand nine hundred percent you're going to be an introvert intravenous drug user so it's not like five percent ten percent fifty percent it's not double your chances it's so high that you're going to be, you know, a drug user if you experience significant trauma. And that isn't dealt with through the 12 steps. No, isn't that incredible? You know, even in my own stories, I look back um, and I started drinking so young. Um, I recognize um, now that my drinking was always to medicate, was always to change the way that I felt that, um, that I always had, I always had that need. And then when my drinking really went off the cliff, it was that it was, a, it was right after a very traumatic experience. Didn't recognize it at the time that that had anything to do with what was going on in my life, but I certainly do now. 
Um, and so, yeah, I, that the, the link between trauma and addiction is really interesting and something I'm really just beginning to learn about. You mentioned a word though, that I find interesting that a doctor um, was telling me about epigenetics. Mm-hmm. Is that where, um, cause I'm not really good at this stuff, but is that where, um, trauma is like passed down from generations that you somehow change your genetic structure because of of um, something, some experience in your life. Is that what that is? Or do I understand that correctly? Yeah. So I, like, I'm not, I'm not a scientist either, but yeah, I think you've captured it quite nicely. In essence, the genes fold differently based on experiences and it's passed down from generation to generation. So that's when we see traumatic experiences. So if, if your mother has the loss of a child or is in, um, uh, you know, a, um, a detention center or something like that. The experiences of those traumas are passed from generation to generation. Yeah. I find that really, really interesting and very true too. And uh, what I, what I'm kind of happy about in my own personal life anyway, is that I think that with me, it stopped because I can see, I can see generationally um, Mm. it being passed on from grandfather to mother to me. But I, I fortunately, for whatever reason, was able to find recovery in a community so that hopefully I'm not going to pass that on any further. <laughs> oh, you just said the most, like, honestly, that lands in my heart. It's so beautiful because a big thing of, about recovery that I feel as well, and it's not talked about that often, is, you know, we say, you know, addiction's not our fault, but recovery is our responsibility. And that responsibility is actually to the next generation as well. Because until until we own this, it keeps going on down the line. And if we look at like my, if we look at like my whole kind of family tree, because I, at first, just like you, I was like, how did this happen to me? No mental health problems. There was no like addiction in my family. You know, everything looked all shiny and great. And then we started plotting out the trauma that sat in my mother's um, bloodline and my father's bloodline generations up. And it was explained very simply to me as like. I'm the squeaky wheel in the family system. I was the one that spoke to all this other stuff that nobody, everybody else hid. And they had it and it came up for them as depression or anxiety and they pushed it down. But I was this alcoholic who was going out and getting really drunk and just, you know, and going missing and doing all this stuff that could not be ignored. And, um, and so, but in, in that healing, you know, if I heal it with, you know, my gym, I mean, I'm not planning to have children, but, um, you know, I, I pay an active role in the, you know, in my niece's life. And, and, and so it doesn't go on another generation, but until it's resolved and I've, and I'm sure you've met people like this as well, you know, they're the, they're the children of, of active alcoholics and of active alcoholics or, or addicts or um, generations up. And if, you know, and they've got children themselves, you know, if they don't, if the individual doesn't, uh, deal with it. It gets blow. It, it comes. It gets carried on through the genes, and it get ca- gets carried on in a way the the addict interacts with with others. So if we take responsibility for our recovery, it's not that we heal the next generation, and also you know the ripple effect of you know think about everyone, every positive conversation that you've had with everyone who's tried to get sober or or just needed some support or needed to be understood. Like the ripple effect of your healing is so powerful. So can you talk a little bit about um, what you do as a recovery coach? Um, like, you know, I know that you have like three different types of uh, programs that you offer. 
And maybe if you can talk a little bit about that and how you approach somebody who is coming to you um, for help as a, uh, as a coach. Yeah, sure. So the way it's actually um, in the process, because my original business, The Meaningful Life by Design, was all career coaching. And then I've moved that into recovery coaching. And now I've got, and got, some, got some new accreditations as well, just, you know, to back up all the stuff that I have. And again, I see the two experience. going together so well. <laughs> you know, seriously. They do. They do. They do. Yeah. They do. That's kind of and, funny. But at the moment, to, sim- to simplify it, um, myself and another coach, recovery coach are going to be building another standalone site called From Here On which really talks to exactly from this point on in recovery. How I work at the moment is I work um, in isolation and I also work with an institute called the Living Free Institute. And basically on in, whenever anyone comes to me and said, look, hey, look, I'm, I don't work with people who aren't sober yet. So um, because, you know, I don't have detox. The detox is, that's an art form. So, um so I'll work with someone. So they might have just got out of a medical detox or just got out of rehab or, or or relapsed before or been in recovery or done any kind of recovery before and maybe relapsed. So it's somebody who's like, okay, I've just got sober or I'm struggling to stay sober or I'm newly sober. And when they come to me, I'll say, look, the, the way that we'll either work is we can work in, in isolation. So they work with um, with me where we set some goals around recovery. Um, we work with um, cognitive behavioral therapy. We work with mindfulness training, get very clear on who they are, the relationship to their thoughts. What is the, What are their goals? What is their environment like? How do we set up every day for success? It's kind of the very fundamentals of recovery coaching. But I'll do an assessment on where they're at because they may need um, and when I, where I work with the Living Free Institute is they if somebody is say in early recovery, if they've um, had a traumatic relapse or something really significant, if they've never been in recovery before, what they may need. So we do intensive programs where they'd work with a clinical psychologist, they'd work with myself as a recovery coach, they'd work with a yoga instructor and with a mindfulness coach. So for people who are looking for like an outpatient type, if you want to do, do rehab but do it from home, that is mind, body and spirit. Because as we know, addiction is a very complex neurological condition. We hold trauma in the body, you know. So there is for there's like a in, in, very intensive option where you can work with the clinical psychologist on processing childhood trauma. You can work with me on how we set up every day for success in your day, week, year, and your goals, and then um, work with you know if a meditation teacher and yoga teacher. So often that way, I'll work with somebody twice a week, and then they'll work with the other specialists on the past and the body and their mind as well. Or if they're kind of just in a place of just, you know, I've come out of rehab, I feel okay, but I need I need some support. I don't want to be delving into my childhood and what happened in the cot. I don't, I'm not looking for a sponsor. And so often I work well, you know, the person might do one or two meetings, but they'll work with me on, okay, what are my goals in recovery? Um, and they'll often have goals around all aspects of their life. So just, you know, to stay sober, they'll have some goals around relationships some goals around career, some goals around finances, health and health and wellness, and all of those go together. So we'll talk around how do you set up every day for success? How is your, what is your relationship to your thoughts? You know, in terms of, do you have any cognitive distortions? How do you be kind to yourself? How do you work with your inner critic? Um, and then how do we set up your life to, to work with those goals? Check, and there's a level of accountability as well. Okay, so we've set up some goals. Are you going to do 10 minutes of meditation every day? We'll check in once, twice a week. Are you doing those? You know, you're doing your yoga once a week. 
Are you How's your diet going? Because all of these things support recovery. Are you connecting to others? Do you have a sense of tribe? Are the people that are in your life enhancing your life? So all of these things that just keep people. And so often, so I've got clients that I work with that started out in an intensive program and now they just work with me once or twice a week. We kind of check in. They've got someone they keep accountable to, can deal with what life's throwing at them. You know, like this is coming up at work and I'm good. this is where I'm going. Okay, let's come back to, to to this problem and where you're going in your mind and, you know, the how you're catastrophizing this and let's put it back into perspective. And and so it's, it's somebody who really supports them in the journey of life and in the journey of recovery and also understands. We're like, hey, we're thinking about drinking recently. We're like, you know, like, you know, like, how's that fantasy going, you know, like, and I know like, yeah, play the tape forward, buddy. You know, we know where that goes. And, you know, and I've, so I've played out all those fantasies. I've, my drinking got pretty crazy. So uh, I've done rehab numerous times. I've been to all the different fellowships. So, you know, I, you know, I understand that the, the mind of, you know, of an addict and the crazy things we do. And a lot of the piece of recovery coaching as well is there's working towards your goal, having an advocate, a coach, a supporter, a mentor, a strategist. There's, there's that, there's that piece there. And there's also the, the piece that there's somebody who, who gets you. And a lot of what I do at the start of working with someone is helping alleviate that shame. It's just like, you know, hey, buddy, this is what your mind was doing because you needed to soothe that deep psychological wound. And, you you know, the complexity of your mind and your capability of the self-soothe is really powerful, but that way that you were teaching yourself of medicating doesn't work anymore. But it's there's nothing wrong with you. It's what's happened to you. And a lot of, like, really just it is a complex neurological position. You're not, there's nothing wrong with you morally, although you may not have behaved in line with your values, but we can work with that now. We can leave the past in the past, and from this point on, we can help you build a life that's aligned to your values and your principles and where you want to be because there's so much shame wrapped up in an addiction, and it's just, you know, it's, it's, another, it's another illness. It's a very complex illness that's really misunderstood, and, you know, it's, um, it's nice to be able to work with people and help them move past that shame because that's really, really debilitating. And it took me a long time to move past the shame. You know, I can really see the value in this. And I'm so glad to see that this trend is going on, uh, recovery coaching, uh, peer support, because um, I would be more comfortable, I think, uh, as a person in early recovery. I think I'd be much more comfortable talking to someone like you who's been there and will be talking to me uh, in my, maybe my own language, but you have the experience, than I would be maybe... I might not be so open up in the beginning with a therapist, uh, especially if I'm not experienced with it. Uh, and it, it's, and, and I might later find myself like I eventually did go to therapy, but I, I, I think I would have benefited a great deal from having somebody like that in my corner that I could talk to that could speak my language. That wasn't necessarily, you know, like a sponsor or, um, you know, having me go down one, particular path you know um mm. so i could really see some yeah. value in that and especially the other the program you talked about where you where you have the three components with the yoga and the therapist and with you makes total sense 
Yeah, so mind, body and spirit, because a lot of it's, you know, we trap emotions in our body as well. And the the power of mindfulness and being able to come back to the present moment that could not get caught up in our anxieties and fears of worry of the past. They're the things we drunk on, we, you know, we drink over because we're like, we can go into shame or regret or remorse or intense in fear or anxiety. But if we can come back to the present moment and train our mind to, to do that. So I mean, recovery coaching, mindfulness is a big part of it. But then if somebody wants a more intensive program, then they can work with, you know, mindfulness or even, or even, you know, breathwork coach. But to come back to what you said before, yeah, there's, I mean, I've worked with different therapists throughout my life too, and um, therapists and coaches, and there's just something so unique about addiction. I just, especially the best clinical psychologist that I ever work with that I refer people with, um, is an expert in the neuroscience of mental health and was was an addict as well and there's something about someone who, I mean, you can say yeah I used to hide bottles under the bed like you too you know and you can laugh about it and you just people who haven't been there just don't get that and the other thing with recovery coaching as well is if the person slips you know so whether it's a lapse or a full relapse for someone who's going to they can talk to is going to be like okay it's part of the process it happens happen to me what do we learn from this one how did you learn all of this? You're speaking language that I really like. Uh, that that um, I learned that the difference between lapse and relapse in smart recovery. They talk about they they distinguish that, and there is there is an important distinction that a relapse is a full going back to the your previous behaviors. Where a lapse might be maybe you maybe you had some drinks and maybe that wasn't so great. Maybe it was dangerous, but you didn't you didn't completely relapse into your former. Yeah, out of, out of control again. Yeah, yeah that's, it's interesting you say that. Like, I, I tried smart recovery, um, but, I mean, it didn't gel with me because I was also working with a clinical psychologist who had done quite a bit of CBT, and it's a, it's a little bit 101 CBT. Um, but I can see how it's, you know, a very powerful program. Um, uh, for me, because I refused to get sober for so long, I did a lot of, I did a lot of, cause I was like, I'm going to fix this so I can drink normally. So I studied a lot around the, the um, neuroplasticity. Um, you know, I really looked at all the different ways of how the mind worked, how the mind worked in addiction, different ways of recovering yet. Cause I wanted to drink moderately. And what I know now is that um, if we look at, say, criteria like the DSM-5 and look at, you know, how from a moderate, you know, mild, moderate to severe addiction, if you're mild and you're essentially like a heavy drinker, you know, your body will still go back to homeostasis. You could stop drinking and you maybe you can drink again in the happy days, but like you were. But what's happened when you get to severe addiction is the in terms of the, the way that your brain is wired, um, you don't go back to homeostasis. And anyone who's been a really heavy drinker or drug user who's gone out again and realised that they're back to drinking a bottle of vodka a day or back to, you know, the drug dealer on intravenous drugs straight away will have experienced that firsthand. You just you just can't go back to the, you know, the early fun days and moderate drinking. It, do, it, just, it just doesn't work like that. It's, you, the, the wiring has essentially changed. Now, you build new neurological pathways, new healthy pathways of coping with your emotions and not drinking. And like personally, I don't think about drinking. I don't miss drinking. I go to parties with people who drink, with people who drink. I get bored and I go home. You know, it's not, it's, uh, my trigger is actually around emotions and loneliness. So if I was to, you know, and actually, you brought up an interesting point before. My my big when things really kicked off 
was when it was a traumatic event that ripped the, the Band-Aid off some childhood trauma of all of this stuff that I'd never dealt with and didn't realise and it took me years to work it out yeah. as well. Yeah. So, yeah. So <laughs> when you talk about the different um, um, places on the spectrum where addiction falls, again, this is something I, I'm, I'm learning so much later in life, but I, I read a wonderful book that I, I love and, and I talk about quite a bit, The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober. And she talks in that book about um, addiction being a spectrum disorder and that you can be mm-hmm. anywhere on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Like maybe I was way over on, on the far end of the spectrum, but other people might be on the lighter end of it. And, you know, her point was that, you know, it doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum, that making a decision not to drink is just a healthy choice for anybody. And in one of your blog posts that I was kind of wanting to talk, talk about, and this is a good place to talk about it, I guess, you talk a little bit about the sober curious, the sober curious people, which I think is a, I think that's a great trend. I'm, I'm learning more mm. about that. And can you talk a bit about what that is, the sober curious person? <laughs> yeah, good, um, good question. Now, being that I'm not super curious myself, I'm actually <laughs> right. a severe addict, addict that needed to get that really needed for the for the better for the betterment of the world and everyone in my immediate world. I needed to get sober, um, but um, sober curious. I mean, it's in, where I live. So I, I live in Bali, and there's a lot of um, the conscious community live here. Uh, a lot of people who are um, to. Uh, veganism, um, it was essentially looking at a more pure way to, you know, nourish mind, body and spirit. And, I mean, Sober Curious is essentially a movement where people um, look at getting at getting sober, at not drinking, not necessarily because they're an addict that needs to go to re- recovery, but because it's potentially something that will work better for them. Like alcohol is a depressant. Yeah, it's it, not it, a healthy it, thing to put in your body. And it, <laughs> And, it, and it's a poison. Yeah. It's a poison and it's, you know, and it's, so there's a lot of myths around, you know, the health of, of alcohol. And look, you know what, if it works for you, no judgment. If someone can go, can go out and have a few drinks or go out and get drunk and they wake up the next day and they don't hate themselves, well, you know, good for you. Awesome. I think we've all got to find a way that works for us. And the sober curious movement is people who are like, you know what, maybe drinking doesn't work for me. I, I don't really, like I can stop. I'm not that out of control but maybe it would be a better way of life. And it's interesting, like my generation, especially in Australia, it's like you don't trust someone who doesn't drink. Okay. There's something wrong with you. <laughs> right. there's, yeah, there's something wrong with you if you don't drink. And you drink to get drunk. That's pretty normal behaviour. Like when, like in my kind of partying days, like we'd drink and drug all weekend and really thought that there was nothing wrong with that. You know, my whole peer group did that. You know, but but there's not there's a new generation coming through that look at you know what, and in the work that I do with businesses um, around their people and culture strategy, um, we were finding that in terms of reward and recognition programs, some of the younger generation don't want money behind the bar anymore. They want Pilates. Yeah. Like there's there's a whole new generation of people who are just who are, are more, more conscious of questioning about what they're putting in their body and questioning whether alcohol is going to work with them. Just like we would question, does monogamy work for me? Does marriage work for me? Does a nine to five job work for me? Does everyone used to drink to have a good time? Is that, does that really work for me? And there's a lot of people who are making conscious decisions around their lives and whether alcohol fits into to their lives. And, and, and if they're using it in, there's a lot of people who exactly on that spectrum 
would not be a severe alcoholic, but they, but they use alcohol in unhealthy ways and it doesn't work for them, you know. So any of those people could benefit to, you know, get, get on track in recovery. And as we said, you know, the 12 steps is a really nice program for anyone. Right, it is, it is. I also like the fact that it kind of, um, and, and, and I think a bit kind of takes the stigma away from um, not drinking. Uh, that it kind of normalizes that this is just a healthy choice that I'm making not to drink. Um, mm. It can be difficult uh, for some people early in their recovery to go to the workplace, for example, and have to deal with drinking situations. And, you know, people want to know why you're not drinking. I mean, all these things kind of come up. But if we're, if this is, if our society is moving into a way with alcohol, the way that we did with cigarettes, where you just kind of say, oh, no, I'm just not going to drink because it's not healthy. You know, it's just like I don't smoke. Yeah. It just kind of takes that. Yeah, totally. Away. Like I used to always. Yeah, it, it does. I used to um, before I was good when I was still trying to just stop drinking in, in spurts and then go back to drinking normally. I used to always just say I was doing like a juice like I was at a work thing, I was like, I'm doing a juice fast or I'm doing a cleanse or doing detoxes is very trendy. Right. So they don't know that you're actually detoxing because you had like right. alcoholic poisoning and you had to go to hospital. Um, but um, it's like, yeah, my detox started in an ambulance, you know. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just a healthy choice. It's just a healthy choice. It's a healthy choice whether you had a problem with booze or whether you didn't have a problem with booze. So you mentioned you mentioned the community in Bali and how people are um, interested in, I guess, uh, becoming more healthy spiritually and in different ways. Um, I'm not familiar with Bali, but it it looks like a beautiful place. And can you can you talk about what what got you to move there? What keeps you there? What is it about Bali that's special for you? Sure. Okay. And I'll give you the, the real story as well. Okay. Um, because I used to, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful, I mean, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful life. I mean, I always tell the, the truth now before, but the same as when I used to say that I was just doing detoxes. That's why I wasn't drinking. Um, but I used to say that, you know, I worked here because of, I moved here because of like, you know, the co-working situations and there's a great startup community. And that is true. But the honest truth is um, I had a relapse over here, ended up in a rehab, built a very strong community. There's a very strong recovery community here. And like a lot of places in the world where there's a strong party community, there's a strong recovery community. Interesting. Okay. So Bali is a really, um, and, and for me, um, Bali is a very spiritual island. With this, they have a Balinese uh, Hindu, distinct from the rest of Indonesia, um, which are, it's a it's pro- predominantly Muslim country. Um, and Bali has this unique blend of Hinduism, which is a mix of animism and Hindu, and they it's just there's always um, blessings and worship and they, they worship lots of different gods and um, it's just an island that has um, a, an incredibly beautiful energy and the people are very kind and they're very conscious and so there are lots of elements that make it a very special place that in terms of recovery, so it's, it's one of those places, there's a few around the world, you've got Ibiza, you've got conscious community, Goa, you've got conscious community, um, um, Boulder, you know, there's different places in the US where you have these kind of spiritual conscious communities. There's a big conscious community in uh, Bali. There's also, it's also a bit of a drug hub for Asia. So there's a big, um, it's a very fascinating little island. There's a big drug culture, then pops up a big recovery culture, and then there's also a consciousness uh, community here as well. So um, 
it's very like there's an area um, uh, Ubud where if I go out with all my buddies up there who I've met on retreat, we've gone to Buddhist Buddhist meditation retreats together, um, uh, done you know all those kind of things, and and like my group of friends up there just don't drink. I'll go, I'll be like, oh my god, nobody drank, and they're not actually they don't identify as sober. They just don't drink, you know. They don't eat meat and they meditate and they, you know, have a, a walking a spiritual path and that means not putting chemicals into their body. So there's kind of that community and there's also the strong recovery. So there's AA and NA here. Um, um, it's a softer approach to, I mean, I've never done, done fellowship in the US before, <laughs> but, but of my understanding there can be a bit more delineation between AA and NA. The, the communities kind of blend here a bit um you know i'll pop in and out of either depending on what right. time the, the night that i feel like going to a meeting what's on tonight oh okay then i okay i'm an addict tonight tomorrow i'm an alcoholic but um <laughs> i really just i mean i like the community and the principles but there's and there's also because it's an affordable you know like in the u.s i think you know people go to mexico or they go to miami miami and they go off to rehabs it's also an affordable place to go and pop yourself away so you can go on holidays for 28 days and and it's um, not uh, comparatively uh, to do rehab here is less expensive. But it doesn't have the same, I will say, um, having done and needed to do proper medical detoxes before because, so you know, the danger of those early stages of um, uh, withdrawal, you know, uh, they're very dangerous, you know. I've... I, you know, my experience has been, you know, medical detoxes always need to be done with, with absolute professional professionals. And, you know, if anybody is ever assessing to put themselves into a, a detox or rehab or um, a medical detox to, yeah, have somebody who's, who really knows to, you know, knows that stuff to assess um, the level of care that they're given in those early days. It's, yeah, really pivotal. And you've given back. Uh, there's a, um, a, an organization, I guess, that you you were belong with, maybe started Bali Aid. Um, can you talk yeah, about that? So, and what's going on with that? Absolutely. Yeah. So I, at the start of the crisis, um, myself and a couple of others co-founded Bali Aid, which is all around you know just giving back in the the time of crisis and helping. Initially, what we did is we um, paired up with um, uh, Scholars of Sustenance SOS, which is was all about feeding the most vulnerable. So really like a kind of crisis response at the start of the crisis. So Bali, about 85% of the island here depends on tourism. So when the borders were shut, um, there were all these people that had moved, so very poor Balinese that had moved to the cities and were earning money off driving foreigners around and working in the spas and that type of stuff, all of those jobs disappeared. There's a whole big sector of the of Bali that it has like kind of two-week holidays, cheap holidays. So it's a little bit like in Ibiza, you've got San Antonio, you've got this aspect of the island, which is a lot of cheap holidays. Um, so all of that, you know, that market just disappeared. So there was a huge, and, uh, and people who'd come from other islands to Bali to survive, um, all their jobs were gone. So, um, so what we did initially was just got people together and did some fundraising. So, you know, for anyone who'd enjoyed Bali, um, 
it's an island that just gives back so much. So a lot of people come here to fall apart, to put themselves back together again, to have a beautiful holiday. So that the idea of the initial campaigns at Bali Aid was all around reciprocity. So giving back to the island that's given so much. So we ran some campaigns there and now I'm helping doing fundraising with the Togetherness Project and Tanam Saja, which are again two other projects that are all around uh, giving back in a more sustainable way. So the Togetherness Project is ECAT weaving, coffee farming and um, honey farming. So helping people return to their original traditions. So raising some funds to help them get back to, you know, working back in the land and back to the arts and so and the incredible ways that the Balinese were living here um, previously. And Tanam Saja is all around um, community gardening and planting seeds. So, um, so educating, um, you know, schools and families on how to develop community gardens and farms for themselves and, and live off the land. So just more sustainable initiatives to help at this stage in, in the crisis while the, the island is still, still struggling. Okay. If, um, if you have a link or something where people can go to help out with that, I'd be glad to post that with the show notes and uh, maybe, maybe some people Absolutely. will help. Absolutely. Never know. That would be amazing. Yeah. For anyone who's ever been to this magical island and wants to give back or just wants to give back to, to, to causes that are helping through the global crisis, helping people return to traditions and economic stimulation and job creation rather than just kind of handouts. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll give you some links and yeah, any support would be greatly appreciated. Well, I again, I thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I'm really honored to have you here. It was uh, amazing to learn about you and what you do and your website and your podcast. I just think you do great work. I've learned a lot from talking to you. I think that uh, listeners will learn a lot as well. And it'll be interesting to follow you uh, to see how things progress over there. So uh, thank you again very much. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. So wonderful to speak to you today and to your listeners. And that's it. That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to help out our podcast, a couple ways you can do it. You can go over to patreon.com slash Beyond Belief Sobriety and become a patron. Or you can just go over to our website and buy us a cup of coffee or click on the uh, PayPal button. But you don't even have to do that if you can't because we're going to podcast anyway because we just like doing it. Uh, Thank you again. Uh, It was really wonderful to talk to you. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Kylie. Thank you. Thanks, John.